A very good morning to you. It's lovely to see you all here this morning. If you'd like to grab your newly located tea and coffee, come and grab a um, seat, grab your donut, and we'll get cracking. We're carrying on a series that we started uh, this morning looking at Second Timothy and how it is that, um, how particularly we live our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, so that uh, we can pass on the faith either to those people who don't yet know Jesus or indeed, like we see here in, in, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, in the case here of uh, Paul to Timothy, uh, um, to encourage, to pass on what we know to those who are um, not quite so far along in their journey of discipleship. A couple of weeks ago, we began, uh, obviously in chapter one, by looking at building a spiritual heritage and how incredibly important it is for us to remind ourselves of our faith, to remind ourselves of our friends, to remind ourselves of the family of which uh, we are part of and uh, our spiritual heritage and our family. Last week we looked at what it means to live an authentic Christian life and we looked at the beginning of Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 and Paul's three metaphors for us as followers of Jesus, uh, that of the dedicated soldier the disciplined athlete and the diligent farmer. And today, what I want us to do is I want us to carry on into chapter 2 by looking at how do we pass on the baton? How do we pass on the faith when the storm hits? When the storm hits. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy and uh, chapter 2. As some of you uh, may know, a number of years ago, I lived, in the, uh, I lived in the Middle East for a couple of years. And... I remember, I think it was probably one of the most traumatic experiences and traumatic moments of my life. I, I was driving the road uh, between Dubai and Abu Dhabi when a, a sandstorm hit. Now, um, that road back then, and this is, uh, this is a while ago, okay, so this was, uh, this was before the first Gulf War, um, and this was before the Emirates had been redeveloped within an inch of its life. Um, and this road between Dubai and Abu Dhabi, it, it, was, it was dangerous at the best of times. Um, it didn't have any lights. It, it didn't have any lane markings. In fact, it didn't have any markings at all, not even which side of the road was which. It, it was notoriously dangerous. Lorries would just break down in the middle of the road, and the drivers would just abandon them and leave them there for you to hit. Um, camels would frequently wander onto this road, uh, uh, usually with pretty horrific results. So it, it just wasn't a great road. And here we were, I was driving along it, and this desert storm just came out of nowhere. And, and it was absolutely terrifying. And it felt terrifying for, for what felt like an eternity. You couldn't see in front of you, and so you didn't know if you were going to hit something. You couldn't see behind you, and so you didn't know if something was going to hit you. The rain and the sand and, and, and the wind were of sort of, you know, apocalyptic proportions. And uh, I was convinced that um, I was going to die, uh, and I was almost convinced that it was actually the end of the world. I, I thought I was living in Armageddon. And um, it was pretty terrifying. And... Um, all of you will have been through something similar. 
you know, you're driving along the road and suddenly the heavens open or there's a blizzard or um, thick freezing fog sort of comes out of nowhere and you're driving along and you literally grab hold of the steering wheel and you, you, you hang on for dear life because you're trying to work out how the heck am I going to stay alive? How am I just going to get through this storm in one piece? And the same is true in life. Sometimes you just hit challenges or situations or life stages or whatever it might be and it, it feels like you've been plunged into thick fog or you've suddenly been overtaken by uh, a sandstorm. Maybe as we talked about uh, last week, it, you know, it's not a personal challenge that you're facing. Maybe it's a, a cultural one where the pull of the, the, the values of the culture are so strong They've created so much confusion. You can, you're, you're so confused by the culture's values that you can no longer see where you're going. and You can no longer see where you're supposed to be driving. And so the, the, the cultural pull of you know, academic success and financial security and career development and material wealth and social standing and all those things that we're so familiar with, they're, they're, they're clouding our judgment. And so it's as if we're driving through this thick fog and they're making living life as a follower of Jesus so much harder. So what do we do when either some personal challenge we're facing or the values of the culture in which we find ourselves um, have made the sort of the lane markers, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the central reservation, the, the hard shoulder, all these reference points on our road What happens when they've been made all but impossible to see? How do we keep on keeping on when the storm hits? Well, as always, we need to turn to the scriptures to see how they help us. And um, we touched on this last week, so I don't really want to spend too long on it. But I, I think it's incredibly important for us just to revisit and to see Paul's attitude here regarding um, the things that he's facing. Okay, so um, let's have a look at 2 Timothy. Let's just look at the beginning. Uh, 2 2 Timothy chapter 2 starts in verse 8. It says this, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Let's just hit the pause button uh, here just for a second and consider what Paul's actually going through when he wrote this. Um, First of all, he is in chains. He's been convicted as a criminal for preaching the gospel. He's gone through his preliminary hearing. He's about to face final sentencing in which a full Roman court would pronounce a death sentence over his life. So, So Paul's in prison... And as far as he's concerned, he's uh, facing a a virtually certain death sentence, which is pretty bad. But for Paul, that's not the worst of it. 
That's not the worst of it. The worst of it for him, as we touched on a couple of weeks ago, is that he feels like he's seeing and he's watching his life's work evaporate around him. Do you remember we talked about how there was trouble brewing in the churches that he'd planted? Uh, People were leaving the churches. People were going back to their old Roman ways. And Paul felt like he was seeing his work and his effort and his labor just disintegrated. On top of all of that, a number of the the church leaders in the churches were teaching heresy, and um, people were getting really confused about what real and authentic Christianity was. So there's all of that going on. And meanwhile, this is all against the backdrop of the Roman Empire and its cultural pull never really being stronger. Uh, People were flocking in their droves to the most popular entertainment of the day, which was watching uh, men, women, and children being herded into arenas to be torn apart by wild animals or uh, hacked to death by gladiators. So all of these are the current kind of things that are going on for Paul. And you look at it, it's like, yeah, things aren't going very well, Paul. I, I, I don't know if you're aware, but it's not going great. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the personal storm, in the midst of the cultural storm that is hitting him full on, full force, somehow this guy manages to maintain this incredible optimism. He's incredibly optimistic. And it's not an optimism that's based on some kind of you know, positive thinking. It's not um, some optimism based on the fact that you know, uh, he's got this incredibly cheerful disposition. You know, I, I'm sure he's a very cheerful chappy, Paul, but it's not based on that. It's not rooted in denial and just, you know, I see no ships. And Paul's optimism is grounded in the facts of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. His optimism is grounded in the coming of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. His optimism is rooted in the unstoppable power of the word of God. And the first thing that Paul says is, if we want to survive the storm, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Whatever it is that we're facing, whatever the discouraging circumstances of our lives, Paul says, first and foremost, please remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Call to mind, hold in view, meditate on the things that happened on Easter morning. Consider the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Remember, remind yourselves, reflect upon the fact that if Christ can overcome death, if Christ can overcome sin, if Christ can beat Satan, if Christ can defeat hell, if he can do all of those things through the resurrection, he can overcome anything that we are facing and some. So remember Christ Jesus raised from the dead. And then he goes on to say, remember Christ Jesus descended from David. Descended from David. Not only should we remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, but we should remember that he's descended from David. And what Paul's doing here is he's reminding us that God promised the Old Testament King David that one day one of his descendants would bring to earth a kingdom rule and reign That would last forever. And the descendant who did that was Jesus of Nazareth. 
And what Paul's doing here is he's reminding Timothy, he's reminding us that even when it looks like everything's gone pear-shaped, even when it looks like all is lost, even when everything is almost, almost too desperate, too much to bear, remember, remind yourself that God has been working throughout the whole of history to establish his kingdom, to establish his rule, his reign, the rule and reign of the kingdom of God in the lives of literally billions of people. And so because of what Jesus has achieved through his resurrection, because of the inauguration and the coming of the kingdom, Paul can remain incredibly optimistic, no matter what he's facing. And he's facing a lot of stuff. He may be physically in chains in a Roman prison, but his spirit is not chained. Really, you can feel it in the text. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Remember David descended. Uh, Jesus descended from David. And then he's also optimistic because he says in verse 9, God's word is not chained. God's word is not chained. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm optimistic because I know about the unstoppable power of the word of God. So I know that the, the unstoppable word of God is able, has the power to transform lives, to transform society, and that it will not return to the Lord void. God's word is not chained. Paul, Paul might be in prison, but nothing can imprison God's word. And he has that confidence, that supreme confidence in the scriptures. He, he knows that it's stronger than secularism. He knows that it's stronger than the cultural pull that's going on around him. God's word is not changed. And he proclaims it in this incredible way. And so, in light of that, in light of all those things, no matter what we're facing, you're beginning to see how can we be anything but optimistic. But he doesn't stop there. That's enough for us to be going with, on with. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps on pushing on. And he says, he reminds Timothy, he reminds us of how because of his great love for every single one of us, God is in the business of salvation. God is in the business of saving us. God is in the business of bringing us the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's saying, here's something else for you to be optimistic about, even when you're facing many trials and even when you're in the midst of challenge. Have a look at verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says this. It says that God doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants everyone, and the, the message translation of this is this. It says he wants everyone to have time and space to change. God doesn't want anyone to perish. God's desire is to save. And it's because of his great love for us that God has chosen not to leave us, not to abandon us, not to abandon our culture, not to abandon us in the middle of a storm. God in his goodness and his grace, even when we turn our backs on him, he never turns his back on us. You know, when everything's going on around us with so much stuff that we have to face, it's so easy for us to get discouraged. It's so easy, given the current climate, to fall foul of fear, to be anxious, to lose heart. And, and what 
Paul is saying here is, when you feel like that, just hit the pause button and call to mind Christ Jesus raised from the dead. Call to mind the coming of the kingdom of God. Call to mind his unstoppable word. Call to mind the salvation that is ours because of Christ Jesus. And then, and then take a look at what he says next. He, he, he quotes, many people believe that this is a quote from an, an ancient hymn. Verse 11. It says this, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Um, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Uh, one of my jobs is to preach um, and teach on the whole council of scripture, not just my favorite verses. Um, and so um, we'll do our best. Okay? You, you look at this and you go, well, that's not very nice. You see, if, he dis- if we disown him, he'll disown us. Uh, and there is there's quite a sharp warning in here for us when we are challenged by how we handle what life throws at us. If we disown him, he will disown us. And the strong warning here for us as Christians is if we don't endure, if as followers of Jesus we give up on him, if we reject him when the storm hits or when time gets tough, then what Paul's saying is before the judgment seat, Christ will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And that's because what's required of us as followers of Jesus is that we persevere when the storm comes, that we don't give in, that we don't abandon hope in the midst of challenge. And we read this and we kind of go, uh-oh, I could be in trouble here. Um, I'm pretty sure I don't have that kind of faith. I, I, I look at my life and there have been loads of times when I've, I've literally, I've been knocked off my feet by the power of the storm. Or there have been times when I've you know, it's like I've been driving along through fog and rain and I can't see the road markers. And, I, and the truth is, I've ended up driving all over the place. And if I was being really honest, I would tell you that I've usually driven very, very, very off-road. Does that mean I've blown it? Does that mean I should just, you know, throw in the towel and just give up now? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because you see how Paul ends this hymn with this great promise? A promise filled again with optimism and hope. He says this in verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. You see, it's an amazing thing to remember that God doesn't give any of us what we deserve. We even have a word for it. Grace. It's, you know, by God's grace that if we are faithless, he, he remains faithful faithful it's god's grace and in and because of his grace god not only doesn't give us what we deserve he gives us so much more than we deserve he gives us so much better than we deserve because of his graciousness so in the midst of challenge in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty paul's encouraging us to keep on keeping on Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Remember the coming of the kingdom. Remember that God's word is unstoppable. Remember he's wanting every single one of us to see his salvation. And remember that even when we are struggling to find our feet, even when we're struggling to find our faith, if, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. 
Some pretty good reasons in there, I think, to remain optimistic, even in the midst of serious challenge. Okay, so having given Timothy uh, and asked these reasons to be cheerful, you know, part three, um, even when we're in the midst of tough challenge and opposition, either through personal circumstances or through uh, cultural pressures, uh, Paul then goes on to give us some guidelines as to how we can make sure that we stay on course and on target, even when it feels like we're in the midst of thick uh, fog and torrential rain. Now, if you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, um, you see Jesus, Jesus gives us these kind of road markers and these um, lane markers, as it were, concerning how it is that we might approach life. And, and Jesus tells us that there are basically two roads that we can take in terms of the way that we do life. And, and one is the broad road, and uh, loads of people are on it. Many people are on it. It's, it's really popular. It's, it's the most popular road uh, for our culture because it's the, it's the road whose value system is, do you know what, do life your own way and do life on your own terms. That's, that's, that's one route. The trouble with that, Jesus says, is what so many people don't realize is that the, the, the destination of that road is actually destruction and death. It's just, just misery. They just don't even know it. And then Jesus says, but there is actually, there's another road. There is another road. Uh, but this road is, is a narrow road. It, it's much harder. It, it's much less popular. Uh, far fewer people are on it. Um, and the value system of this road is not do life your own way, do, um, do whatever you fancy. It's do life God's way. Do life on God's terms. And what Jesus says about this road is that this is the road. It may not be popular, but Jesus said this is the road that actually brings us to abundant life and the fullness of life as God intended. And time and time again in the Bible, you see the, Bi- the Bible gives us these pretty stark <laughs> alternatives as the way that we do life. And, and what Paul goes on here to do in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is he comes up with another three metaphors, but this time they're three contrasting metaphors. In the midst of the storms that we're facing, you know, a storm of, um, uh, that Paul's facing, the storm of the troubles brewing in the local church, uh, the, the, the trouble and the, the problem and the difficulty and the challenge with the Roman Empire, the, facing his own imminent death. Um, Paul tells Timothy, saying, look, here are some lane markers. Here are some things that are going to help you stay on track on this road. They're going to help you keep on keeping on so that you can keep driving. You can keep motoring even when it gets pretty tricky and the fog falls. And he gives us these three pictures in quick succession. See if I can talk as quickly as he does. Um, And the first is that of the the good versus the bad workman in verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And Paul's telling us a couple of things. He's two, two points really about this good workman. And the first is that a good workman, a good worker is approved. And, and what that word approved here literally means is tested in the way that gold would be tested in a fire. You're very familiar that the genuineness of metal would be tested or approved by putting it in a fire so that all the dross burns off and when it comes out of the fire, what's left is pure gold. And the way that we as Christians prove ourselves 
to be good workmen, to be good workers, it is by being tested, by being tested in the fire and enduring. It's like, hooray! No wonder everyone's on that road. You know, but you do realize, don't you, that the fact that you're going through the fire now, you know, at home or at work or wherever, the fact that you're in the midst of a really challenging situation or circumstance, that doesn't mean to say you're a bad worker. Okay? So many times as Christians we think, you know, if we're experiencing some kind of difficulty or some kind of challenge, it must be because I've messed up. You know, and we say, oh, uh, my life is so difficult, so hard. I must have done something wrong. I've offended God in some way. Uh, The enemy is sending me this trial. Um, My life is just a constant battle of spiritual warfare. Maybe. Maybe. But, if you read your Bibles, you will know that the very best of God's workers, the very best of God's workmen, the real giants of the faith, they were often tested the most. Look at Abraham. Take your son, lie him down. I think we'd like, him, we'd like you to sacrifice him. Hurrah! You know, think of Daniel. Just pop into the lion's den or pop into the furnace. Just pop somewhere for a few days and hang out. Let's just see how you get on. You know, Paul, I mean, seriously, being a Christian, miserable. You know what I mean. Well, (laughs) never, never go off piece. Um, Anyway. um, (laughs) uh, But you think about these giants of the faith and they're tested. You know, that list goes on. And the truth of the matter is, when God is wanting to um, perfect us, he tests us. You see, um, God's goal in our lives is always to produce the very, very best in us. God is always wanting us to be the very best version of us that we can possibly be. And God's goal in testing us, in, in putting us through the fire, in, in allowing us and causing us to undergo these trials, it's, it's always to purify us, to get rid of the dross, and it's never to punish us. God's goal is always so that we then live fuller and richer and better and more joyful lives. God's desire is always to bless us. So if you're in the fire, um, can I encourage you? Because it might simply mean that you are a good workman, approved by God, someone God is approving of, someone God is testing. Second thing about the good worker is that they're not only somebody who's approved by God, someone who's tested, someone who passes that test by enduring and remaining faithful to the Lord. Um, they're also somebody who can and correctly handles the word of truth. It says it in verse 15. They correctly handle the word of truth. And, and this word here, correctly handles, it literally means uh, uh, cuts straight. And, and the picture is of a civil engineer who cuts a, a road absolutely straight so that um, a, a traveler can get to their destination in the most direct way possible, with no deviations. And here's, this, here's the idea. When you're in a storm, when the storm hits, and you can hardly see five inches in front of you, the lane markers are non-existent, everything has gone to pot. You've got no idea which way is up. How do you keep on driving? How do you stay on the road? 
Paul's answer is by handling the word of God correctly. By cutting a straight path through the word and not deviating from it to the left or to the right. We don't need to turn to it now, but you know, you'll be familiar with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. You know, when we're going through the trials, when we're going through the storms of life, the person who's blessed doesn't get their counsel from sinners or scoffers or mockers. They don't, that's not where they get their counsel from. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates both day and night. His counsel, our counsel in the midst of the storm comes from this place. And this place only, this book. And as you know, it goes on and it says, and he will be like a tree planted by the streams of life. His, his, his uh, yields fruit in season and his leaf will not wither. And whatever he does will prosper. That's how we handle the word of God. That's how we handle the storms that we're facing. And the reality is that none of us is going to get very far without doing everything that we possibly can as, as individuals, taking responsibility for ourselves and our personal relationship and walk with Jesus, without soaking ourselves and immersing ourselves in this book. It may uh, well be that we say, do you know what, I don't understand it all. Well, good, neither do I. Uh, it may well be say that we say, I don't get it all. Well, okay, well, neither do I. It, it may well be that we say, I don't even know that I agree with it all. Well, uh, that may well be true. However, from this moment, can we be saying as a church, as followers of Jesus, as a people, that we're saying, in spite of all of the challenges, in spite of all the struggles I have with it, I am doing every single thing that I possibly can to submit my life to the authority and the teaching of this book. Can we say that? So that we become trees planted by the streams of life. So that we yield fruit in season. So that our leaves don't wither. So that what we do, whatever we do, prospers. Whatever uh, we're facing, whenever we're facing the trials um, and the storms of life, handling the word of God correctly is absolutely imperative. Okay, um, settle in. When we're um, facing the storms of life, uh, we need to be a good workman. Another thing that Paul says is um, we, we need to be... Um, a noble vessel, okay? Uh, and he talks about this contrast between the noble and the ignoble vessel. These are, these are older references. Um, they keep updating the Bible on me. It's so annoying. Um, the NIV now says article. I prefer vessel. And um, uh, it used to say uh, noble vessel. Now it says for special purposes. And ignoble, and now it says for common use. I'm sticking with noble and ignoble. Um, Verse 20, in a large house, there are articles or vessels, not only of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some are noble or for special purposes, and some are ignoble for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And so Paul mentions these, these two types of vessels, these two types of articles. Some are made of gold and silver, some are made of wood and uh, clay, some are for special purposes and special usage, some are uh, for common use. Uh, and the picture Paul's giving is this two ways of, again, two ways of doing life. And our aim is that we would be 
noble vessels, holy vessels, vessels used for special occasions, for special purposes. Uh, that we might be a gold cup or a crystal glass that, that is used for a wedding celebration or something wonderful. As opposed to when he speaks of articles or vessels made for common use or ignoble purposes. And when he's talking about that, what he's actually referring to are things like um, a chamber pot or a toilet. If we want to get through the challenges of, of life, we need to be a good worker. We need to submit God's word to our life. But if we want to survive the storms of life, we need to be doing all that we possibly can to ensure that we are holy vessels, clean vessels, noble vessels, for special purpose, not ignoble. And we all have a choice in how we're going to get used. There are these two alternatives. We can either be used as a gold uh, or silver goblet for noble purposes, helping uh, other people find their way in life, helping other people find their way to Jesus, um, uh, being an encourager, extending mercy, and on and on, special purposes. Or, and I say this with all affection, we can be used as a toilet, uh, where we are literally allowing junk and rubbish to accumulate in our lives. And over time, so much junk and so much rubbish gets accumulated in our lives that we no longer are able to um, impact other people's lives for good because we're bunged up. We're clogged with rubbish. See how restraint, seriously, uh, that's proper restraint. John Wimber at the front of his Bible used to have um, three words. Restraint, restraint, restraint. I, I, I know why. Um, <clears throat> I should write it down a bit, few more times. The decision of which we're going to be is down to us. You know, the good news is, if we feel like we've just been stuffed full of rubbish and waste, wasted relationships and rubbish attitudes and bad choices... The good news is, by the grace of God, we can always get cleaned up. Verse 21, those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. What Paul's saying is, by coming to the cross, we can be cleaned up so that uh, we're no longer, and again, I say this with all affection, um, are being used as a toilet. The cross of Christ takes all of that rubbish away and transforms us into vessels of gold, noble vessels, holy vessels for God's glory. Okay, the good workman, the noble vessel, I promise I am finishing. Um, And then lastly, the gentle versus the quarrelsome servant. This last picture that uh, that Paul gives us is is that of the, the gentle servant. Have a look at this in verse 22. It says this, flee. This is just another encouragement. What he's saying is, um, this is what we should be doing if we want to endure the storms of life. If we want to keep on keeping on, flee the evil desires of youth. Flee, do something about it. Just don't do those things anymore. Flee the evil desires of youth. And instead, pursue righteousness. Actively, intentionally decide to pursue righteousness actively and intentionally decide and choose to pursue faith and love and peace peace and 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 do it all um, surrounded by along with those who call on the lord out of a pure heart 
That's just a freebie. Uh, verse 23, don't have anything to do with, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the traps, uh, the trap of the devil who, who has taken them captive to do his will. And the last thought here is, if we want to more effectively handle the challenges that we face, if we want to better negotiate and navigate the storms that, uh, of life that life throws at us, we need to be people who are submitting to God's word. We need to be applying God's word to our lives. Um, we need to be people who are clearing out the rubbish from our lives and choosing to live lives for the Lord that are holy and purified and set apart and set aside for him. And, and finally, we need to be a people who manifest a kindness and a gentleness and a graciousness towards people, even when we might strongly disagree with what they say. And we need to do that as gentle servants. So much of the challenges, honestly, the challenges, so much of our challenges that we face uh, come from our attitude towards other people. It comes from our attitude towards other people. You know, someone offends us, uh, someone upsets us, or, or someone has, I don't know, how dare they? Someone has an opinion that's different from ours. And it unsettles us. Uh, and it's like, we become all kind of bristly and prickly and indignant. And it's like, how, how dare they? They're expressing an opinion that's different to mine. What on earth are they thinking? What's wrong with them? And it, 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 it irritates us and it, 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 it gets our goat and it, it makes our blood boil such that I don't, want very, I, don't, I don't want very much to do with that person anymore. I, I don't want to talk to them anymore. I don't want to look them in the face. I, I don't even want to be around them. Now, we would never say any of this, you know, because we're Christians, do you see? So we'd never say it out loud. But it's what we think and feel sometimes. And what happens then, what happens is that relationship then breaks down. And suddenly there's this unspoken, unspeakable wedge that's kind of been driven in between us. Now, in those situations, chances are the poor, unsuspecting other person has absolutely no idea that uh, they've uh, said anything that's upset us. They have absolutely no idea that they've done anything that's upset us. They're probably and usually absolutely oblivious to the fact that we have an issue with them. All they know is that something, something doesn't seem right. Something's not quite right about our relationship. And, and, and it feels like that relationship's been damaged. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is because we're so mad, because we're so cross, because we're so angry, it's almost impossible for them to come up to us and say, is everything all right between us? Verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant mustn't be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Broken, fragmented relationships, are, they're like a thick fog. They're like a thick fog that suddenly hits the motorway while we're driving. And 
uh, the, or the, it's like a, a, a torrential downpour that suddenly hits us uh, such that we lose track because of them. We lose track of where we are and we lose track of where we're going. We lose the ability, fragmented, broken relationships, inhibit our ability to be able to see where we are and where we're going. And if we're wanting to do life, if we're wanting to endure the storms of life, we know that we need to do this thing together. We know that we need to do this thing in relationship. We know, we must know by now that we can't do this stuff on our own. And so we need to take and pay attention to Paul's words here. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Because you know they just produce quarrels. And the way that we do this thing together, the way that we don't get embroiled in these foolish and stupid arguments is for each one of us uh, to make the decision and to make the choice that we are going to walk in humility. Um, So we um, we are not to be quarrelsome. Um, even when we're right, doesn't matter. Um, we are to be kind to everyone, uh, regardless of who they are and regardless of what they've done. Uh, we are to be teachable, uh, both in the giving and the receiving of correction. Uh, we're, uh, we're not to be resentful. Uh, we're, we're not to hold grudges. Um, we're not to store stuff up against one another. I'm stopping. You don't, you don't have to set an alarm on me. It's like, seriously, it's like some countdown. Ten. I'm going to go on for longer now. We're not to store up grudges, you know, against, against one another. We're holding on to these things that uh, apparently we've done or we don't even know that we've done and, 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 and holding those grudges for years. It's not on. That is not how we do business. That is not how Christians function. We need to stop it. And what we need to do instead, in all humility and grace, let's put, let's gently, let's gently guide one another in the hope, in the hope that God will grant us all repentance and lead us all to a knowledge of the truth. I'm going to stop. Why don't you stand?